Well, good evening and welcome to another study of the Lord's Word. I appreciate that song, Jason, because standing on the promises is a really, a really solid concept to think about as we, as we talk about Paul's writing here tonight. Uh, as was mentioned, we're doing uh, Romans chapter 9, and I hope we're not repeating that. <laughs> I'm not supposed to be on 10, but I think we're right. Um, I do have all the scriptures from our text tonight on the board in the New King James, if you want to follow along with that. I've got a few things that I'll reference that uh, I don't have listed up here, so I'd encourage you to, to follow along in the word that you've got. Um, <clears throat> I think that if I get up here and talk about Paul's writing, eventually you're going to start crying wolf on me by talking about how Paul is worked up and, and passionate and excited and yeah, that's, that's how he does it. That's his, that's his kind of signature thing. But this is an, uh, one of those that stands out. He's uh, extremely passionate in his writing here, uh, slightly more so than, it, than his usual writing. And in all of our, our studies of the apostles, uh, we know that Paul was the, the principal apostle to the Gentiles. And as we study this work, this work meaning as we study... Paul's work with the Gentiles and everything that he did. We can see that God's infinite wisdom was really at, at work here um, with Paul and his evangelism to the Gentiles. He was definitely the guy for the job. But then we also know that he was a Jew. And what you might say, he was a Jew's Jew. He was a Pharisee. Um, now the Jews knew that, that they were God's chosen people. And, and they generally snub their nose towards everyone else. So when Paul does an about face from persecuting Christians, from standing in the law, standing on the principles of the Jews, and, and decrying the Christians, when he changes his perspective and his, and his mindset to being a Christian, and not only that, being an apostle, you might think that he's turning away from the Jews. Um, I think if you have a, a sudden realization that some group that you identify with, that their mindset, that you know it's all wrong, and you're going to break ties with them, and, and you just distance yourself from them, and you turn from them, and you don't want anything to do with them. And I think that's kind of a logical thing that we'd have. We distance ourselves from, from that kind of group when we make a change and, and come to a realization. But Paul, he did realize that his way of thinking was wrong. And he knew that the Jews in general felt the same way that he did before Jesus intervened in his life. Uh, but don't let that change of heart that he had make you think that he no longer had love for his Jewish brethren. And that's, that's where his passion comes in tonight. He is completely heartbroken about the state of Israel. And in this chapter, this, this is the topic that Paul's focusing on. We've talked about uh, the promise coming to the Gentiles through the seed of Abraham, um, countless lessons on the old law and the new law and and that's not going to be what we dig into tonight um, the most basic summary of this chapter is is Paul first explaining how sad he is about this problem and how much so uh, of God's plan has been enacted through Israel they've had these these blessings these advantages they got everything from God and he, and he points to scripture that they all know prophesying of the rejection that they're going to reject Christ and that, that God will reject them for it. And it, it becomes clear that it's this 
kind of audacious and arrogant mindset to think that, that God isn't fair and that being born a Jew should be enough. That's not the mindset that we should have, that they should have had. It all comes back to grace, not self-salvation. We can't do it on, on ourselves. That's kind of the, the, the summary of what we're going to look at here. But as we read this, we're going we're gonna to work to understand each of these verses. And I think it's very important to remember where Paul is coming from and consider the audience. Uh, when we opened the study of Romans, uh, Monty elaborated a lot on who it was written to, and in short, to all believers in Rome, including Jews and Gentiles who have become Christians. Romans 1 and 7 says, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. So that's who it was directly written to. And the Jews who believed, they definitely had trouble letting go of the old law. Uh, not just in Rome, but, but all of them in general. Uh, even if they accept Christ, they're still clinging to it from birth. They understood that following the law was God's demand, and they believed that, it would, that they would be saved in doing so. The problem is that nobody could uphold it perfectly, and even just barely short of, of perfect, that's still not good enough. They needed a Savior, just like we all do. It's just a hard pill for them to swallow. And we're not going to do a lesson on, on that tonight, on the purpose of the old law and the, and the new covenant, how it blotted out the old law, but we, we want to keep in mind that that's the mindset, that's the difficulty that they were wrestling with as Paul's addressing them here. So let's begin reading here. Verse 1, Romans chapter 9, <clears throat> says, I tell you the truth in Christ. I am not lying, my conscience also bearing with me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Paul, formerly Saul, was persecuting Christians before he met Jesus and became one. But Paul wasn't the only Jew doing this. After he began his ministry for Christ, he earned himself the hatred of many Jews who were, they were already after the Christians. And I wouldn't be surprised if more of them jumped onto the bandwagon just to pursue and persecute and try to bring Paul down because it was so offensive to them that Paul, a Pharisee, would become a Christian and then dedicate his life to, gain, to gaining more Christians, to converting more Jews and Gentiles alike into being Christians. The horrible things that Paul had to endure at, were at the hands of the Jews. There were some that, that vowed to not eat or drink until they murdered him. Despite that, Paul still absolutely loved them. He wants them all to be saved, and he's saying here that with all honesty, he's telling the truth. He, he, he can't be more blunt about it. He is in bitter anguish because he knows that they can't be saved by the law. And he knows they're wrestling with that. And he knows that most of them have rejected that concept. And it breaks his heart. Continuing on, verse 3, he writes, For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. In a chapter study we did, it's been quite a while now, we, we came across the word anathema. Uh, this is in 1 Corinthians 16 and 22. It says, if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema maranatha. The word anathema is the exact same word in the Greek here, um, translated as accursed. 
So accursed, anathema, it means excommunicated. What Paul is saying in this, in this phrase is that he wishes he could be accursed, excommunicated, separated for Jesus, from Jesus Christ if doing that would mean the Jews would be saved. He would sacrifice his own salvation to save them. Now, he knows he's not a worthy sacrifice. Only Jesus was. He knows that's not something that he even could offer. He's saying it to express how much their salvation means to them, how serious he is about this, how, how heartbroken he is over it. And to be clear, his wish here is for the benefit of the Jews who he calls his brethren. If they aren't in Christ, the Jews that, that aren't in Christ, we might say, well, those aren't his brethren. But then he clarifies it by saying, my countrymen, according to the flesh. In other words, those born as Jews, just like him. <clears throat> and continuing on in verse 4, Paul then associates that heritage that he has as a Jew, that of all the Jews, by the flesh with the nation of Israel. And saying something they all know, he's pointing to the advantages they had and the favor that God gave them. It's them to whom pertain the adoption. Or in other words, it's, it's the Jews that are the children of God. It's them who God gave his law to and his promises. The Passover, the Day of Atonement, the temple, it was for the Jews. <clears throat> the, uh, the service of God. And he says, of whom are the fathers, giving recognition to the, the lineage of the Jewish patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. It's from that distinguished and noble heritage that Christ came. <clears throat> and then in verse 6, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. So that's a little confusing, and, and Paul is wading into the topic here that's basically unspeakable to the Jews. Uh, plainly speaking, being a Jew did not mean you would be saved. They are not all Israel, they are not all children of God, who are of Israel, who were born of Jews. <clears throat> Further, one could even be saved and counted as a seed of Abraham, even if he or she was not in any way related through the flesh to Abraham. Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. And I didn't tug on this thread very much. But we know that Abraham had other children besides Isaac. Abraham had a number of concubines. We know about Hagar. Um, Keturah was, was a concubine he had that he married after Sarah's death. Uh, among the concubines, the number of children that he fathered may have been in the hundreds. Again, I didn't, I didn't research this. Um, but there's definitely at least some that we're familiar with. The sons of Keturah and, and Hagar they were clearly sons of Abraham. They were his children, but they weren't recognized as the seed of Abraham by the Jews. And this is mentioned here that not all who are of Israel are of Israel. Not all are children because they're the seed of Abraham. It's mentioned here to confirm what Paul's saying about this fleshly connection, the genealogical connection to Abraham 
didn't necessarily make someone an Israelite. The Jews, they, they plainly understood, they plainly misunderstood the promise of God to Abraham. Yes, it's through his seed that Christ came, but we can be heirs of the promise when we take on Jesus. We don't have to have Abraham in our earthly family tree. And they didn't see it that way. But they couldn't deny the fact that Abraham fathered children that were not considered Israelites, that were not sons of the promise. Uh, to say that God would reject Israel is something that the Jews would, would be shocked at. And they would decry and they would say, well, that can't be true because then God's word isn't true. And that's why Paul says, it's not that God's word has no effect. There in verse 6, it's not that God's word has no effect to talk about some children of, of uh, Abraham not being of the promise and some being of the promise that are not children of Abraham because they're talking about what well, God said it's going to be through the seed of Abraham. They just misunderstand what, who the seed of Abraham is. <clears throat> His promise is still in effect. God's word still stands. And that promise to the seed of Abraham will be kept. They just need to understand the difference between the spiritual seed and the fleshly seed. <clears throat> and in verse, nine, verse 8 it says that is those who are the children of the flesh these are not the children of God but the children of the promise are counted as the seed for this is the word of promise at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son God's promise was through only one of Abraham's sons Isaac the others are his sons but strictly of the flesh. They are not the children of God. This is the key point in kind of breaking the news here to the Jews that, that merely being a Jew by birth is not the ticket. <clears throat> now, Isaac was a child of promise, but, but so are we. Um, this is also Paul here writing in, in Galatians 4 and 28 where he says, Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. So it, it has nothing to do with genealogy and, and who our earthly, fleshly father was. Now, Paul pivots here a little bit um, to another point about the flesh being unimportant compared to the spiritual promise. See, birthright was a huge deal. The firstborn son had it made. You would never see a firstborn bowing down to his younger siblings, but the flesh just doesn't matter. Uh, who your father is does not make you a child of God who your earthly father is. Verse 10, and not only this, but when Rebecca had also conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now, the story of, of Esau and Jacob is, is fascinating, but it needs to be understood that God knew before they were born how it was going to play out. And this is not God determining their destinies, but knowing that the lives, what kind of lives they would lead. <clears throat> the firstborn of Jacob, well, he gets cast to the side. God's chosen, the child of promise, uh, sorry, the firstborn of Isaac. Jacob becomes the child of promise here. In verse 14, after that, 
Paul says, what shall we say then? Is God there un- unrighteousness? Let me start over. What shall we th- say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. So with such a a regard for their posterity, their family heritage, and, and their birth order, it didn't seem right or fair that God would favor some, but not all of Abraham's children. Well, that line of thinking is just us, or or in this case, the Jews, um, is basically the creature judging the creator, God. And he's he's saying here, if you're going to ask, is God wrong to do that? Is that that not a righteous thing to do? Is that not unrighteous that God does that, that he chooses one and not the other? Paul's response, certainly not. He's God. He says he's going to have mercy on whom he'll have mercy on and compassion on whom he'll have compassion on. And it's not up to us. It's not him who wills. It's not that we want it. We can want it all we want, but it's still the mercy comes from God giving it to us. And this may be a hard truth to take, but it's still a truth. We need to understand that God's will is going to reign And to question God is just absurdity. He chooses to have mercy on some and not on others. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills, he hardens. So if God will harden Pharaoh, then Pharaoh can't do anything about that. God made him that way. He has no way of being reconciled with God, and that might seem unfair. They might say, why would God hold us responsible for being a sinner if we're a sinner that he himself has hardened? Is that, as they said um, in verse 14 here, unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. Verse 19 He says, you'll say to me, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? In other words, we can't change who we are if if God made us this way. Why is he finding fault? Why are we guilty in his eyes if he made us a sinner? But indeed, oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? We're in no position to question what God does. We're not righteous for one thing. But what do we know? We're the creature. God is the creator, not only of us, but of everything. We're going to question him? We're going to question that? I don't think so. Uh, Paul's response here is to say, you, who are you to say that? Why would, why would you even ask that question? And the analogy of the potter, it's not a real common thing we think about making pottery, you know, these days, but I, I can't help remember being a child and making pottery out of clay. I, I vaguely remember having the little potter's wheel and, and it would, had batteries in it and you can make a pot, you know, it's kind of neat. I try to make a nice flower pot for mom or grandma, and, and honestly, I can't remember. But I do distinctly remember making an ashtray 
for my grandfather because that was easy, right? It's just an ashtray. It's not really a vessel for honor. There are priceless, masterful vessels that are formed in the world. There's also clay pigeons that you chunk in the air and shoot them with a shotgun for fun. You know, it is what it is. God creates as he wills. If he wants to harden Pharaoh, are we going to judge that? I don't think so. Verse 22, what if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So time is something that, you know, we think we understand, but we really have no idea. God putting up with rebellion and his people continually departing from him is what we would say him enduring and long-suffering. But things occur when he wants them to, and this long-suffering and enduring is, is God's plan, playing out as he wants it to. There's purpose in it. And we would know his glory from what he shows us through these events. Those who are the vessels of mercy, those who are to be shown his glory, are the ones he called. And again, Paul confirms that the called is not just of the Jews, but also of the Gentiles. Now, Paul's pointing to scripture to kind of cement this concept of being comprised of all people and, and that not all Jews will be heirs to the promise. Uh, verse 25, he says, as he says also, in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. That's Hosea 1 and 10 where it says, yet the number of children of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, ye are the sons of the living God. Uh, again, in verse 27, he says, Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. Isaiah 10 and, and 22 and 23 says, For though thy people Israel be as the sand of the sea, yet a remnant of them shall return. The consumption decreed shall overflow with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts shall make a consumption, even determined in the midst of all the land. So again, he's he's giving them scripture that he knows that they know. And it's reinforcing that not all of the Jews are going to be called. They're not going to be children of the promise. And... Children of the promise also will be comprised of people that weren't born as a Jew. In verse 29, it says, And Isaiah said before, Unless the Lord of Seboeth had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have been made like Gomorrah. Here Paul references Isaiah 1 and 9, which says, Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom, and, where, and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. Lord of Seboeth there 
is elsewhere translated Lord of hosts, meaning Lord over all. And basically that just means that without Jesus, our fate would be destruction, <clears throat> which obviously we are aware of. Romans 9 and verse 30, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith, but Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained the law of righteousness. He's kind of summing all this up that the conclusion here is that Gentiles who've lived a life of debauchery and, and, and sin and, and just totally separated from God, he's saying that they didn't pursue righteousness, yet they could attain it. The complete polar opposite, the Israelites, they worked at it all their life, and they still can fail to attain it. It's an incredible thing, and it's really a blow to the Jews, but they need to know it. They need to, they need to come to terms with it. And the reason the Jews who were striving to live by the law failed to attain it is because they were seeking it by works, thinking that they could do good enough. And they needed to be seeking it by faith. Verse 32 says, why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling, a stumbling stone and rock of offense. And whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Paul cites Isaiah 28 and 16 with reference to Jesus here. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation of stone a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. And in Isaiah 8 and 14, about those Jews stumbling over him, he says, the, the scripture says, and he shall be for a sanctuary, but for a stone of stumbling and for a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, for a gin and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Again, just reinforcing that they need to come to terms with the law being replaced by Jesus instead of Jesus being something they're tripping over and, and not attaining salvation because of it. Now, it was a, a lot of verses. I ran through that pretty quick because uh, it was fairly long. I didn't think it would, would be quite that fast, but... Um, I have a kind of a recurring thought as, as I go through all this. I mean, again, in summary, Paul's just really broken up over, over the situation of the Jews. They, um, he's directing this to the saved in the church, those who are receiving the letter, but we know that they're, they're clinging to the old law, and I think that he's more broken up about the Jews that, are, are rejecting the, salver, the salvation, aren't accepting Jesus. But for those that are, that are just clinging to things in the old law that, that they all had trouble with, those who accept Jesus and, and are still struggling on what they ought to be doing and still have these misconceptions about the, the law and their works in the law being something that, that gets them closer to God, we look at that and we're like, yeah, you, you know better. Like, you, you've got the word. You know better. Why, why are you doing that? But isn't that all of us? I mean, we, we know. We've been given the word. We, we come to Jesus, and yet we still cling to something in life. You know, something may be dragging us down, and, 
if we take a step back and look at it like here we are looking at Paul, an apostle, speaking to Jews that have been converted that are struggling, and we're like, you know better. Come on. This is like this is, this is simple. It's given to you. You know better. But if we were to step out of our own lives and look at ourselves like that, would we not say, you know better? Would we not look at what we're doing and, and be pretty broken up about it? And I think it, it could be certainly applied to ourselves. It could be certainly applied to, to others that we're, that we're facing that are being stubborn, that are um, you know, believing that they're worshiping in the right way, but they're, they're clearly tripping over a stumbling stone of some sort in their lives. It's, it's really a matter of believing, reading, understanding, learning, and believing the word because that's how you know better. And they knew better. They just needed to accept it. We need to accept it because we know better. So the lesson is yours. Um, Hasn't been one of the first principles, but if you have a need with your salvation, if you need to obey, if you need to come to Christ because you know better and you need to do something about it, then we offer the invitation for you to come and do that. If you just need anything at all, that we can pray for you or help you with. We, we ask you to come and sit on the front as we stand and sing.